John chapter 8, I'll begin reading in verse 30. Hear the word of God. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if, he, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father And you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would come and cause your words to come with power and with full conviction and in the Holy Spirit that we might be laid bare before Christ himself and also given the sweet balm of his gospel message. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we jump into verse 37... Let me preface our time together with four comments that might help you swim before I plunge you into the deep end. So first, this is our second week in the same passage, because last week I had realized I bit off more than I could choose. So for those of you who weren't here or who may need a quick review, let me summarize what we learned from verses 30 to 36. Basically... Genuine disciples of Jesus are not those who believe only when it's palatable, only when Jesus' words are palatable to them. No, genuine disciples abide in Jesus' word regardless if it stings 
or if it sings. Regardless if it wounds or if it heals, they abide in Jesus' word. True disciples, take in Jesus' word, swallow it, digest it, let it become part of them through and through such that they come to know the truth revealed in the person of Jesus. Abiding in Jesus' word unites us to himself. He is the Son. And when you're united to the Son, it's the Son who sets you free from your slavery to sin. That's the gist of what we saw in verses 30 to 36. Second, as we move into verse 37, you can see a pattern that may help some of you uh, understand what's going on as Jesus continues to confront these Jews. And the pattern goes something like this. Jesus says something about who their true father is. The Jews object to his words. They don't abide in them. They stiff arm them. And then Jesus clarifies why the statement he made about their true father is accurate. This will happen twice as we walk through our text. And the question that it presses upon us, being the word of God, is this. Who is your real father? Who is your real father? If your father is truly God, then you will abide in his son's word. If there's no abiding in Jesus' word, then the question becomes, whose son are you really? Third, back in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus called himself the light of the world. And since then, he has said nothing else about the light of the world. But that shouldn't mean that we forget that Jesus is the light of the world as we keep reading through the Gospel of John. Rather, we should see in his dialogue with the Jews that the light is shining in the darkness. There's a severe darkness that plagues the hearts of mankind and the only way for us to see ourselves rightly and to see the world around us rightly and to view God rightly is if the light shines upon us and awakens us to the truth. I don't know what part of this world's darkness might plague you this morning or is blinding you to see God's reality in Jesus fully, but I can say from Jesus' word right here that the light that you need to escape the darkness is shining. It is shining brightly for your eternal joy in God. So forth, you need to consider, even before we get into the text, how you're going to respond to the light. The question is not whether the light is shining, but whether you're loving the darkness instead of the light. I was sitting at the table on Thursday with the family, and at one point I said, Luke, guess what daddy spent all morning studying about in God's Word. And Luke says, what? I said, I was studying what it means for somebody to have the devil as their father. And he looked over at Rachel and just said, Mommy, can you pass the sour cream? (laughs) And that was it. Like, he didn't even come back to it. Now, granted, I could have approached that a little differently with my five-year-old. 
But it at least gave me a great illustration about how we usually respond when the light shines. <laughs> Who talks like this? You're of your father, the devil. What would you say? It's unsettling, and yet sometimes the, we just pass right over it. Just the, the light doesn't even phase us as it should. It may not be sour cream that's more interesting, but it may be Facebook when you're trying to read your Bible. It may be a preoccupation with angry birds when the Holy Spirit has set you next to a lost person at the doctor's office. It may be the news about so-and-so that you just have to know quite apart from what you read in your Bibles in the, that morning about gossip. It may be that like these Jews, you're rather quite content with what you already know and you don't need Jesus to speak any further into the depths of your soul. I mean, after all, you're a Christian, right? You might even be of the Reformed persuasion at that. So let me just challenge you at the outset. How are you going to respond when the light shines through this text? There's only two ways to respond. Remain in a love affair with the darkness or enjoy the light of Jesus Christ as God's true children. So those are the four comments I want to set before you as we now jump in at verse 37. Again, we've already observed as a first point that abiding in Jesus' word unites us to the Son who frees us from slavery to sin. And here's a second point we encounter that is true of all genuine disciples of Jesus. Abiding in Jesus' word means believing and enjoying God's revelation in the Son. Abiding in Jesus' word means believing and enjoying God's revelation in the Son. One of the things the Jews had placed such confidence in was their fleshly lineage that could be traced back to, back to Abraham. We pick that up from verse 33. We're offspring of Abraham, they say. But Jesus now shows them what being a child of Abraham really means. It means more than simply possessing an earthly birth certificate. In its truest sense, being a child of Abraham means you believe in God's revealed plan of salvation through His Son, and this the Jews were not doing. Let's read it together in verse 37. I know, he says, that you are offspring of Abraham, and he means physically speaking. He knows they share the same bloodline of Abraham. Yet, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Again, he's taking them back to the abiding language of verse 31. When you don't abide in Jesus' word, Jesus' word finds no place in you. Just, just murder of God is there. Where does this murder come from? Well, Jesus hints at it in verse 38. I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you've heard from your father. And before any clarification can be given, the Jews object. Abraham is our father. So Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. 
I think one of the things that we're seeing throughout the Gospel of John is that Jesus sees things that we cannot see. Jesus sees things about these Jews that they cannot even see of themselves. This is why we need the light from outside of us to shine in upon us. He's able to expose things about us that we're unable to discern on our own, even into the deep recesses of our hearts. The Jews want to keep things on the surface, but Jesus exposes their true spiritual condition. He's basically telling them their physical link to Abraham means zilch if they do not do what Abraham did. In other words, he's telling them that their doing exposes their being. Their doing exposes their being. What you do tells the true story about who you are. Their murder and rejection of Jesus' word exposes their true nature. Their hostility to Jesus strikes at the heart of who they really are. And in Jesus' understanding, which is the highest understanding and the most perfect and comprehensively right understanding in the universe, they're not true sons of Abraham, regardless of what they can boast about in their flesh. He's saying, yes, of course you're Jews on the outside, but let me show you what's not lining up here. My word finds no place inside you. You only have room for murder and hatred for the truth. That's not what Abraham did. So what did Abraham do? That's the question they ought to be asking themselves. True children of Abraham will evidently possess more than just a birth certificate. What is it they will possess? Well, when we look elsewhere in the counsel of God's word, we see exactly what Abraham possessed and what characterizes all of his true children, namely believing and enjoying God's revelation in the Son. There are a few places where the, the apostles help us see this as they reflect on God's promise to Abraham and God in the Old Testament and, God's and Abraham's response to God. I'm thinking of places like Romans 4 and Galatians 3 and Hebrews 11 and James chapter 2. Essentially, God called Abraham out of his homeland and revealed to him his plan to bless all nations through a promised seed, an offspring, a promised son. We see that in Genesis 12. And what the apostles tell us, Abraham took God at his word. He believed what God had revealed in his promise. And it led Abraham to see, for example, to see beyond the land of promise in Canaan to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. It enabled Abraham to see beyond the sacrifice of his son Isaac that God is in fact powerful to raise the dead. And the same was true for all of Abraham's true descendants. They too took God at his word and believed in his revealed plan and a promised son, such that even now, Hebrews eleven sixteen says, God isn't ashamed to be called their God, and he is preparing for them a city. 
Romans 4 even gets more specific. It says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision after uh, he was justified by faith, and he did, and that was for this purpose. To make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That's all of us Gentiles. And to make him the father of the circumcised, that's the Jews, think John 8 here, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Very insightful to what's going on in John 8. The Jews are trusting in the flesh, and Jesus is saying it's not about the flesh, but about what Abraham did, namely walking in faith. And we can get even more specific on what that faith actually looked like and who that faith ultimately resided in. Look down at verse 56 in John 8. Your father Abraham, Jesus says, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. There's no faith or belief words used there, is there? That's because Abraham's faith expresses itself through rejoicing in Jesus' day. Faith comes out in gladness that God's promised son was coming to rescue him from his sins, rise from the dead, and bring him into the new city. The heavenly one whose foundations and designer is God. And he didn't even have all the revelation that we have since the coming of Jesus. He had a word from God that revealed his plan to bless multitudes through a unique son. That's it. And he believed, the scriptures say, and rejoiced to see his day. We have the son. We have the son. He came. Abraham had a word. We have the word made flesh. There's nothing partial or hidden anymore. He came. God's promise to Abraham was standing before these Jews in the flesh. We have more than just a word of revelation. We have God's self-revelation incarnate. And yet unbelief rears its ugly head. That's not what Abraham did. He attended the word of God, believed what it revealed about the promised son, partial as it was, and enjoyed all that it entailed for knowing and having God. Abiding in Jesus' word means we believe and enjoy God's revelation in the son. That's what characterizes all true descendants of Abraham. Believing and enjoying God's revelation in the son. Not spurning it. Not trying to make it more palatable. Not reinterpreting it to support our own comfortable living. Not short-circuiting its power for our own wisdom. But full-on, glad-hearted humility and repentance producing, welcome into my life, Word of God, 
Show me more of the sun. That's the sort of abiding that changes our being. We don't change our being by changing our doing. We change our being by letting the word of Christ in here to abide. What these Jews are doing has exposed who they really are under the surface, but the answer to changing who they are isn't in, isn't in something within them, regardless of what Oprah's philosophy of life says today. And it isn't even in something within this world, regardless of what scientism champions today. The answer to changing who we are is found in the truth which is outside of us and outside of this world, but has come into the world in the person of Jesus. The answer is found in the revelation God has spoken in Jesus' Son, in, in Jesus Christ, God's Son. His word alone changes our being because his word alone brings us to Jesus Himself. The Jews seek to kill him because Jesus' word finds no place in them. But how does a murderous heart that wants the eternal Son of God dead, how does a heart that writes a book that's nowadays called God is Dead, how does that heart change ultimately? How is a heart like that changed? It changes when the truth from outside this world finds a home within. Change that glorifies God and brings true joy takes place only when God's revelation in the Son enters our rebellious and messy hearts and just cleans house. That's when we see what we've ultimately been created to enjoy, namely Jesus, the Son, standing there in all of His glory. Some of you desire to change and overcome this or that sin. Some of you want your marriages radically transformed. Others of you want to see God do a mighty work in your care group or even in this church as a whole. That change will only come when Jesus' word finds place in us regularly. That transformation will come when you husbands are taking your wives to Jesus' word and treasuring all that he is revealed there. It takes place when you lead the whole family into the word of truth and take the kids to give your wife more time with Jesus and lead your son to open to the promise of a Psalm 3 When he has bad dreams at night, I laid down and slept and I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000 peoples who surround me. I've got God on my side. It happens when you sisters plunge each other's hearts into the depths of God's love written across the pages of Scripture. It happens when your computers and your iPhones and your Facebook accounts and your tongue and your mouth are viewed as conveyor belts for God's revelation in the Son to everybody you encounter. 
Revival of the soul will only come through soaking yourself and others in the word of Jesus and remaining under its influence morning, noon, and night. Our church will experience change only insofar as we're pointing each other to the truth, week in and week out. Your care groups will flourish insofar as this book is open. And insofar as these words are coming out of your mouth to one another in ways that impart grace to the hearers. Change comes through an encounter with God Almighty in His Son. And how we know the Son truly is by abiding in Jesus' Word. That's why Paul tells the church in Colossae, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. The more we abide, the more we'll see the Son in all His beauty, and the more our affections will desire Him So that's the second thing we should take away from this passage. The first is that abiding in Jesus' word unites us to the Son, who frees us from slavery and sin. The second is that abiding in Jesus' word means believing and enjoying God's revelation in the Son. Here's a third point for you to consider in this passage. Abiding in Jesus' word ultimately stems from God making us his children. Abiding in Jesus' word ultimately stems from God making us his children. Jesus doesn't leave the whole father-son discussion, does he? He's not thrown off by their interruptions, their objections. He's going to make his point that he hinted at earlier. So again, in verse 41, he says, You're doing what your father did. And again, the Jews object, but up the ante a bit. We're not born of sexual immorality, which could be a loaded shot at Jesus' virgin birth. Or it could simply be a general reference to some sort of pagan birth. Whatever the case, they see themselves as morally superior to Jesus and the rest of the Gentile world. We're not born of sexual immorality. No, we have one Father, even God. And as he did before, the light of the world exposes them. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm not here, and I mean and I and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You're of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Some background may help us understand. What Jesus is saying here in his cutting remark. In the Old Testament, God called Israel his son. When, uh, when the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt, God came to Moses and he said to him, You shall tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. And then from that point forward... In Scripture, God deals with His people as a, as a father. It became part of the, of the language de- describing the covenant relationship God had with His people, at least those who obeyed Him. And in Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, Moses writes this, 
This is the song of Moses. Is not the Lord your father? This is what they were to remember as they went into the, as they went into the promised land. Is not the Lord your father who created you, who made you and established you as a, as a nation of people? Then later, as some of the prophets would lead the faithful ones in Israel to trust in the Lord, they would again use this language of God being a father to his covenant people. For example, Isaiah 63 verse 16 pictures the remnant calling out to God in prayer. Look down from heaven and see, for you are our father. Likewise, in Jeremiah 31 verse 9, God promises his people's deliverance with these words. With weeping they shall come and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel. So you can very well see why the Jews would say, we have one father, even God. They believe that by, the, by virtue of their Jewishness, that they already have a relationship with God. But Jesus points out that this couldn't be further from the truth. The only covenant relationship they know is the one they share with the devil. (laughs) Man, that is a kick in the stomach. When you think you have a relationship with God and you're told, actually, the only one you have is with the devil. Now, just to be clear, uh, Jesus doesn't mean he doesn't believe in some sort of dualistic universe where God is, is a father who's sort of dueling it out with his equal counterpart, counterpart the devil is the other father. No, the Bible teaches us elsewhere that, that God actually rules over the devil. God rules over the devil. He controls the devil. The devil doesn't make one move apart from his permission and counsel, and on the final day that God will destroy the devil, in the lake of fire. What's going on is that the devil has been given some temporary power on earth and he rules over the evil spiritual system of darkness that corrupts the world and leads people astray. 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Not the whole universe. Not heaven and earth in its entirety, but the limited world of people who sit in the darkness of sin and death. Satan rules over that. And Jesus is saying to these Jews that regardless of how morally superior their birth was, the only covenant relationship they possess is not one with the sovereign God of the universe. It's actually the one with the devil who rules over the evil world. What does that mean exactly? Well, Jesus spells it out clearly in our passage. It means, first of all, the devil is your teacher. Look at verse 38. You do whatever you have heard from your father. The devil is your teacher. When you have a relationship with the devil, you follow his teaching, which isn't good teaching at all, but actually bad teaching that's disguised as being good teaching. Verse 44 says, he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a father. He is a liar and the father of lies. But when you're in cahoots with the devil, 
and bound by your sin, you can't see the difference. You do what you hear him say. We even know from other places in scripture, like the temptation narratives, that the devil will even use true statements for false ends, false purposes. Which ought to cause you to tremble the next time you tell a half-truth to get what you want. Or intentionally don't tell the whole story to protect yourself. That's dabbling in Satan's games. It also means he's the one you imitate. Verse 41, you are doing the works your father did. This cut rather deeply in a culture where the son was expected to carry on the family business. As a son, you did whatever your father did. If he was a blacksmith, you were a blacksmith. If he was a carpenter, you learned carpentry. Like father, like son. Jesus means the same here, but with remarks that should alarm any son. The trade that you're carrying on is that of the devil himself. It's the same trade that he taught Adam and Eve back in the garden. Distrust God's word and bring death on everybody else in the human race. That's the trade he's in, into. Did God really say? Moreover, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And at least at this point in John's gospel, many of the Jews were imitating him in that they wanted Jesus dead. It also means that the devil's desires influence your will. So we're, now we're getting into the very core of our being that tells us to do this or that, to love this or that. That will is influenced by the devil, by his desires. Verse 44, your will is to do your father's desires. Now, we're not pressing the point so far as to say, it gives us the excuse to say, the devil made me do it. No, we should realize that the human condition is actually much worse than that. It's much worse than that, apart from Christ. And this illustrates what it looks like. The devil has evil desires that are contrary to God's word, and in our sin, we actually want to do them by nature. He's not making us. We want to do it. This is a good idea. I follow him. What he loves, we, we love. And as verse 42 says, that love is not a love for Christ on our own. It's a love for anything that will keep people from seeing Jesus as the beautiful Savior he really is. The devil is nasty. So if the devil is your father, that means you relate to him like a covenant master. He teaches you, you imitate him, and you follow his desires this is very much in line with what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 2. Before any of us knew Jesus, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. That is the devil. We should also note from Ephesians 2 that John's, and, and John's gospel that having the devil as your father is not just a Jewish problem, it's a universal problem. 
It is the predicament of every human, boring, every human being actually born into this world. It's not that some have God as their father, and then others have the devil as their father, you know, the really, really bad ones, and then everybody else is just fatherless. That's not the case at all. No, everybody born in Adam has a deceiving spiritual father, and his name is Satan. If you don't know Jesus this morning, that is true of you. The devil is your father. Parents, let me just say that I hope you see the kind of fight you ought to be fighting for your children in proclamation and prayer. There's a deceiver in this world from whom you cannot protect your children. Save through the truth of the gospel and prayer. You cannot shelter your children from him, from Satan and his hosts. And children and youth, when your, fa- when your mother and father speak to you the word of truth, what they have learned from Scripture, listen to them. They are trying to introduce you to a far better father. The father of our Lord Jesus If any of you are here today without Jesus, only locked in the devil's traps, unsure of how to escape, let me just tell you that God is in the business of freeing people from the devil's tyranny. He does this by making you his child through the redeeming work of his son, Jesus Christ, and by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The regenerating power of the Spirit comes out in verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus says this to expose the spiritual condition of all who do not hear him with faith. He's not just talking about, do you hear the propositions coming out of my mouth? You know, it's not what he's saying. They get that. I know what you're laughing at over there. Right? So... They hear him. The point is that they don't hear him in faith. Why is it they don't hear them in faith? Well, he highlights their spiritual condition. You are not of God. This continues the the same theme John used to introduce his gospel, namely the new birth. It's the same language that we see in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. If you want to go there with me and read them. Chapter 1, verse 12 to 13. I'll start in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. This is what we're observing in chapter 8, playing out. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is what the Jews were boasting about, what they really weren't. So he gives the right to become children of God. How'd that happen? Verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. Of God. Or with Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit, God's Spirit, is spirit. And then we get the same language here in verse 47 of chapter 8. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them rightly is that you are not of God. And he means that you're not born again. You're not born of God. The new birth is behind a true disciple abiding in Jesus' word. In order to abide in Jesus' word, in order for Jesus' word to actually find a place in you, you must first be changed from the inside out. God must give you a heart that loves Jesus, and he does this through the Holy Spirit, applying the beauty of the person and work of Jesus to the heart. If you're abiding in Jesus' word this morning, you have nothing to boast about except grace. (laughs) Nothing to boast about except grace. Like the song we sang earlier, every time you bow your head to pray to your Father, when Abba comes out of your mouth, there ought to be a sense of awestruck gladness in you that you, unworthy and devilish as you were, can now relate to the King of heaven and earth as Father. For those of you who don't know God, don't be deceived when you look around in this room and see people reading their Bibles and loving Jesus. They don't have it all together. They're not smarter than you. They used to be right where you are. What made them who they are as Christians, as Christ followers, was this and this alone, God's grace in the new birth. God made us his children by his power and grace, and he can do the same for you. You're not too far gone in your sins. You're not too involved in devilish schemes for the power of God's grace to rescue you as well. And let me tell you why, and this is for all of us. Not only is the Spirit powerful enough to convert the human soul when it applies the work of Jesus to the heart and make you God's child... But his son's redeeming work has also made every provision for that transformation to take place. All right? One of the purposes God sent Jesus into the world was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil's work is sin. It's what he's led humanity to do since the beginning of time. He deceives people into sin. He tempts them with sin. He accuses people before God for their sins. And he oppresses people with death so that they will sin. But Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He does this in several ways. The devil deceives people into sin, but Jesus cannot be deceived into sin because he resolved, even before coming to earth, to do only his Father's will on behalf of sinners. The devil tempts people with sin, but Jesus entered our world of darkness and overcame every temptation flung at him, most clearly depicted in the 
in the wilderness accounts that we have in our Gospels. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the one who can help us when we're tempted as well. The devil accuses people before God for their sins. Colossians 2.13-15 says that before God we have an IOU, like a certificate of sorts, that actually spells out the penalty that we deserve for our sins, for breaking God's law. And the picture given is that the devil and his demonic forces, known as the prince and principalities of this world, the picture is that these prince, this, this principalities, these principalities and powers, they possess this document, this IOU. And they hold it over us to keep us in, it, in their wicked grip. They use it to blackmail us, essentially. But get this, Jesus then comes into the world, and when he died on the cross, it says that God forgave our sins. He blotted out our sins that are written on that document. He blotted them out so that the document amounts to a dead piece of paper now. And more than that, he took the IOU itself out of the hands of our enemies and nailed it to the cross forever. (laughs) He paid the penalty laid out in the certificate, and then he took the certificate and he destroyed it on the cross. And more than that, since he stripped, he, since he stripped the powers and principalities of their accusing might, he topped it off by then parading them around in the streets as his defeated foes. So that everybody would sit there and laugh at them and, oh, look, they are not mighty after all. It's Jesus who's the one. Jesus is the one that's mighty. Let me just read it to you from Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, there's the IOU, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There it is. He threw it in the trash can. It's done. And he disarmed the rulers of the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. That's good news. The devil also oppresses people with death so that in fear they might commit sin. But Jesus, according to Hebrews 2, partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all of those who through fear of death who were subject to lifelong slavery. And he does this in his resurrection life. The devil teaches us only lies. But Jesus died and rose again to bring us to a father who only teaches us the truth. The devil wants us to imitate his desires. But Jesus rose again to send the spirit who gives us new desires for what is good and right and true. And that we might be called imitators of God in Christ. Not imitators of the devil anymore. The devil blinds us to what is truly glorious. But Jesus sends his spirit to open our eyes to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus entered this world, lived his life, died his death, and rose again victorious to destroy the works of the devil. All of them. So none of you are too far gone. 
Not a single person in this room is without hope this morning in the power of God in Christ to change us. For many of us, He has already done so by making us His children. We know God as Father, and we spoke to Him this morning in prayer, even. The same power He used to convert you is the same power that He will continue using to transform you. Trust in Him. He's not a father who abandons his children to the devil. No, chapter 10, verse 29, will tell us that our Father is greater than all, and no one, the devil included, can snatch us out of his hand. Because of the Spirit and the work of Christ, God can make you abide in Jesus' word, and he can make you to taste of Jesus' goodness. Trust in him as the Father who has revealed himself in the Son to free you from sin and Satan, and listen to the words he speaks when you open up your Bibles. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the good news of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus. I pray that you would make us attentive to your word day in and day out. Let it arrest our hearts with the truth you have spoken in Christ. That we might not be deceived by the evil one, but built up by what is good. In Jesus' name, amen.